the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. We are joined today by our most experienced and beloved podcast guests, Dr. Patty Manning, our Chief of Staff, and Dr. Josh Shafson, our Head of Infection Prevention and Control. And when these two are in the room, we are talking COVID, and that's what we have on deck today. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, So maybe COVID sounds a little funny to be talking about right now, because I think that a lot of people are feeling pretty good about where we are. We're in a lull um, with the pandemic, but there's actually still a lot going on. And so I think where I was hoping we could start today is with kind of lay of the land. What's, what's happening right now? Do you agree that we're in a lull? And um, what, are we, what are we seeing in the community and across the country right now? I uh, definitely agree that we're in a lull compared to where we were in January and February. Anybody who lived through those months knows that uh, it was significantly different then and things are are better now. However, I would qualify that lull and say that in the community we are seeing rising cases in our region, in the state, in the country. You, You probably hear that on the news if you're paying attention. And I understand why people may not be paying attention right now because Gosh knows we've paid enough attention to COVID over the past two years. But for those of us who have to pay attention, cases are going up, meaning people are testing positive for COVID. Um, Fortunately, the rate of case increase is not being matched by an increasing rate of hospitalizations. Um, And that is likely reflective of the impact that vaccines have had in protecting us from getting sicker. Uh, when we do get COVID, it's likely also somewhat uh, the impact of lots of people having had COVID, especially in January. Um, so that's the good news. The good news is we're not overwhelming our hospital systems, which was what was so incredibly stressful a few months ago. But the bad news is, is that COVID's really not go- gone away, and it's probably never going to go away. And this is another iteration of how COVID is going to affect us as a society. People will get sick. Some people, when lots of people get sick, and lots of people are getting sick with COVID right now, they're just not getting as sick. But when lots of people get sick, some people get very sick. Mm-hmm. And some children get very sick. We've had, uh, we've continued to have a steady uh, population of children with COVID in our hospitals. It's again, not as high as it was in January, but it's not zero. And it's not one or two. So if we're weighing those two things together, um, as families were heading into summer, um, you know, I feel like people are just kind of desperate after two years to do the things that they typically do during the summer. How should we behave during a lull, but when cases also aren't zero? So, so I think two things. One is I agree. I think we all need to get out and breathe some air and see one another. And I think it's safe to do so. Um, and so, and the good news about summer is that a lot of stuff happens outside. And so that's reassuring to a lot of people. Transmission is more likely inside than outside, um, just because of the way the air flows. So that's, 
number one. Number two is, um, you know, it, we may not be masking, but we can still wash our hands and we can still stay home if we're sick. I mean, those are sort of universal recommendations that we've been giving for hundreds of years or a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's reasonable. The kids have learned these practices. People have learned this. You know, what we did was we shut completely down early on. We've tried to slowly pull that back. We know that shutting everything down works, but it also has consequences. And so this is continued learning that we have. Um, and and I think that learning is very valuable that parents have now. They, they kind of know um, it's not brand new anymore. So use that and, and balance the risk with the benefit. And we've talked a few times along the way about how different people kind of have different potential risks if they um, have COVID um, or if they get COVID. In the population of people whose immune systems aren't as um, strong as typical, um, typically healthy people, should they be thinking about it a little differently or is this a good time for people who have been very much isolated to breathe a little bit too? So I think Step one is making sure that you've received all vaccines and boosters. Um, Immunocompromised people may not respond as vigorously as those who have an intact immune system, but they still respond. Mm -hmm. And they're recommended an extra dose for the series. So the best thing that you can do to protect yourself is to follow the CDC's recommendation and get as many vaccines as they're recommending. That's number one. Number two is people with abnormal immune systems can still wear a mask whether or not they're comfortable or uncomfortable. Um, you know, many people who are on immunosuppressive drugs or, or have other issues pre-COVID during flu season would wear a mask when they go out and about. Certainly there are other cultures where masks are much more common. Um, you know, something we learned is that masks are effective. You, it doesn't matter what kind of mask you wear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, um, the, you know, in my mind, those folks should be able to manage that risk. One thing we should point out is that while we think first about people without intact immune systems, the risk factors for COVID um, expand beyond that. So obesity is a significant risk factor for getting admitted uh, to a hospital and possibly to the ICU, people with diabetes, older age. Um, So there's a number of risk factors and I think it's important to talk with your physician about risk and about how you might mitigate that. So you mentioned vaccines. um, And Patty, I'm curious, how are we doing on vaccine rates? You know, um, unfortunately, they haven't budged a lot. um, But overall, uh, as a country and as a state, um, I think we're in an okay place. I wish we could say we're in a good place. I think I just looked at the data in Ohio, and we're in that kind of low to mid 60% range. Uh, which is less than the average for the country, um, but maybe better than we would have been. Uh, You know, our vaccine clinics um, are a little bit of a bellwether for vaccine uptake, and those numbers have have gone down significantly, which is understandable, uh, I guess, uh, given that there feels less urgency around getting vaccinated when there's a lull. Um, As I just want to echo what Josh said, we we would absolutely... Uh, first and foremost, encourage people with any risk factors and without risk factors to be vaccinated because you're not just protecting yourself. You are protecting also the vulnerable people in your life. And so 
those who are immunocompromised not only have to be cognizant of their vaccination status, but probably of the vaccination status of the people that they're going to be around, which you know can be tricky. Um, and all of that's because our vaccine rates aren't 100% or 80% or 90%. Uh, I think I read recently somewhere that uh, folks who are committed to not being vaccinated are still pretty committed to not being vaccinated, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a little discouraging. We we really would encourage anybody out there to to not uh, to not let up on the important message of getting vaccinated. And maybe the folks who've been hesitant or resistant for whatever reason, um, as time passes and vaccine safety becomes even clearer, um, maybe that will persuade some of them to think differently. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna just echo so I. I appreciate um, that 60% is better than 40%, um, but it's simply not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's very unfortunate. I'm not trying to challenge anybody or to change anybody's mind, um, but these are perhaps the safest and most effective vaccines we've ever seen. Um, and they clearly protect against poor outcome. We're learning more about vaccine safety. We're also learning more about the long-term consequences of COVID and not just long-term COVID, but damage to the cardiovascular system. For example, there was a large study published recently. Um, so it's a, it's a calculated risk, although I don't know that we know all the calculations. Um, and just from a, from a medical public health standpoint, um, I think that there's very little argument to not get vaccinated. That being said, people make their choices and I respect people making their choices. I just have to piggyback and share a recent experience with a patient. I, I understand how discouraging it can feel to have conversations with either your family members, your loved ones, your friends, or in our case, sometimes our, our patients and families about getting vaccinated when people are pretty committed to not getting vaccinated. And and I have gotten weary of those conversations. However, every once in a while, the conversation lands. And I, I had a patient recently, a, a young adult who was uh, pretty committed to not getting vaccinated, said that to me at the outset of the conversation, but we had a conversation, I shared my experience. Um, we've had a long-term relationship as, as physician and patient, and at the end of that conversation, uh, that patient said, I'd like to get vaccinated today. And it was a really rewarding experience. I say, I share that only as an example of, you know, give people, while it, while it might feel like people are really dug in about that decision, um, you know, use your, your power of, of whatever it is, love, influence, caring, um, to maybe uh, keep that message strong. That's a great sentiment. And I think that as we are looking at the only population of people for whom vaccines aren't yet approved, being children under five years old, and I, as a parent of a child in that age group, am even just hearing people who are like, oh, I won't get my little one vaccinated. They don't get it. They don't get it as badly. Or I just don't, um, I just won't trust it. Um, So I guess I'd just love to spend a couple minutes kind of in that space. There are currently two vaccines that are being Uh, that are in clinical trials, both the Pfizer and the Moderna for this youngest age group. Am I getting that correct? Yep, you're both nodding at me. Sorry, yes, I believe so. Okay, (laughs) do we have any any indication when that might be available? We do not. Um, And part of the reason is, um, so companies will publicize what they're doing in order to inform their stakeholders, their shareholders, and to make money. the FDA will move at a pace 
that is reasonable. Um, and the main factors that have influenced both the perceived delay in the younger school-aged child as well as now the youngest, the first is that so many people have had COVID that how are you gonna demonstrate that it protects you against COVID? So you need more numbers in your studies and you have to be extra careful with the youngest kids because again, they're vulnerable and you don't know what's gonna happen. Um, you know, you, it's not that you're completely clueless, but, but you gotta make sure that you're monitoring for mm -hmm. these safety issues that we've all trusted. Um, you know, the reason that the school-age vaccine is a smaller dose is because the reaction was more vigorous than to the adult dose. And so giving the adult dose would make it even more so, right? That's a major safety issue for our kids. Um, the other is that you need to be able to monitor it long enough to make sure that it's safe. So the last thing you want to do is release an unsafe product onto the market. Um, and truthfully, the FDA has done a wonderful job of making sure that these vaccines are safe. The reason I can make that statement about vaccine safety is, again, the monitoring is unprecedented. It used to be they would wait for enough reports to say this is safe, this is unsafe, called post-marketing surveillance. The post-marketing surveillance for COVID vaccine has been purposeful. They've asked people to report. They've looked at multiple databases. Mm -hmm. Half a billion doses have been given. So that's wonderful data, but it hasn't happened in those young patients. And so from my standpoint, it's kind of like when you're in the airport and the pilot comes on and says, our flight's going to be delayed and you get annoyed. And then he says, it's because we're making sure that everything's safe in the plane. And then you say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And that's what's mm -hmm. happening with this vaccine. Very difficult to wait. You know, there's no Starbucks or ice cream you can go get to wait until your flight's ready to go. But but it's because of safety and efficacy, which is really what we're looking for in the vaccine. And, and the, these families who have the youngest kids, um, I think that there are a lot of factors that are kind of these, these inputs for families as they're considering what they do next. And what advice would you have families who have kids who are under five who are maybe on the fence about whether or not it's necessary or um, a good idea to vaccinate their youngest kids? Well, you know, we're pediatricians and we believe in the power and the safety of vaccines. And so um, as somebody who has overseen our vaccine clinics and, and tens, you know, over 10,000 children that we vaccinated safely, I, I can just confidently say I would strongly recommend that families make the decision to get their under five-year-olds vaccinated. Um, do I understand hesitancy and concern and fear and all the things that people have to balance because of the climate we've been in and all the information that's been uh, kind of run, run around around vaccines? I, I do. And so I would say talk to your trusted primary care provider. Talk to, um, you know, ask questions of experts that you can have access to. Ask, ask questions of us um, because we have a lot of experience in this space. Um, but the way to, to really move us into a safer place with regards to COVID, again, not that COVID will be gone ever, forever, but to move us into a safer place where we can function um, safely as a society will be to have more people vaccinated, and that will include children and children under five. Uh, right now, it seems to a lot of people like kids don't get sick. We, Josh and I can promise you that kids get sick and babies get COVID, and babies have had COVID and croup and COVID and RSV, and those are bad things and bad combinations. So we want those children protected the way we're protecting 
other people and, and um, older children and adults. Um, so that would be my message. I think oftentimes, and I, I thank you for that, Patty, and I completely agree. I think uh, sometimes we get confused with statistics and the N of one, like our child. So how many times um, have I talked to parents and, and I think the most um, frustrating thing that a medical provider can say is, oh, that doesn't usually happen. Uh, yeah, it may not usually happen, but it happened to my child. Mm -hmm. And here at Cincinnati Children's, we see rare diseases. We see unique children, inspiring because of what they achieve and how these families care for these kids. But you would never say to them, oh, that's not typical. They'd come in and say, so-and-so, my kid doesn't read the book. And that's a truth. So I say all that to say that, yeah, it may be true that if you take 100 children, only one or two or 20 or whatever will get sick. But if it's your child, it really matters. And we have no way of predicting one way or the other. The other thing I'll just say um, is the reason we believe in the power of vaccines is because the data is unquestionable. So how many of us have seen measles clinically or in our lifetime? How many schools have been closed down because of a measles outbreak or a mumps outbreak? Measles is eliminated from the United States. Mm -hmm. We don't see types of meningitis. We just don't see it because of vaccines. Vaccines have saved innumerable lives worldwide. Um, and so they're a, they're a hallmark and a cornerstone of childhood health. Patty, you said something during your answer about COVID isn't going to go away. And so I think that we probably need to say that again. COVID isn't going to go away. What could be next? <laughs> well, uh, uh, Dr. Manning, did you bring your crystal ball? I did. Let me get it out of yeah, my pocket yeah. and polish it off. I left mine at home. <laughs> Actually, um, as you were saying that, Kate, I thought, you know, just to say that COVID is going to go away would be like saying the flu is going to go away or the common cold is going to go away. They, they don't go away. We live with those things. We deal with those things. We have consequences for those things that sometimes we put on the back burner, but they're real consequences, like the number of people who actually die from flu. Um, so I guess the, the, my very fuzzy crystal ball would say, you know, at some point we'll learn to live with COVID the way we live with those other things. We are far from that place because we have so much more experience with other infectious diseases, and, and we're fortunate to have an infectious disease expert with us today to talk about that. <laughs> um, but that's my very high-level prediction, that, that um, this won't go away any more than any other infection, uh, infectious agent that we deal with has gone away. And I, I would agree, and I think COVID is a very, um, so, so from a nerdy standpoint, it's an amazing virus. It's persisted, it's found ways to find more people to infect, it's um, modified itself, but still be still effective. It's the code, the genetic code is basically the length of a Christmas carol, right? So it's not very many letters, but it's managed to change its, its words and its letters and still be effective. Like that's, that's amazing from a microbiological point of view. It's terribly unfortunate for the human population and I, I'm not a fan of COVID, but um, there's, it has demonstrated that it is very resilient and no, it, it won't go away. So I heard somebody, um, there was something that we wrote recently and said something about the worst pandemic in history in reference to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we got a pretty quick response 
from someone who said that feels a little too much. Like, how, how, how is it the worst? And I'd be curious to hear your reaction to that. Um, it, how do we, like, judge the kind of severity of a pandemic? And, you know, is there anything that past pandemics that we, that we can look to? I, I don't know. I was just, it was fascinating to me that somebody responded so quickly to that. Yeah, I think that, I think that the word worst can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one reason that it's hard to compare pandemics apples to apples is because of documentation, because of technology, because of the ability to follow data. 1918 data is going to be for a select population. I doubt people of color made it into a lot of those mm-hmm. data sets, um, for example. Um, and so it, it's all about infrastructure and data. So to say worst, that may not be the best word, unprecedented in written human history, yes. We've never seen anything like this. We're not aware that a coronavirus can cause it. Any other pandemic, we were talking about influenza, um, 1918, 1957, like all the different pandemics we talk about, it has not been a coronavirus. SARS-1 and MERS-CoV burnt out and didn't go global. So I would say it's an unprecedented um, event in written human history. Um, but there are so few pandemics to compare, you know? So <laughs> mm-hmm. this is the, the, um, the sparkliest, massive 400-carat diamond I've ever seen. And there's like one in the world. Like, I don't know, but it's unprecedented. I think that there are also societal uh, contexts to consider when you think is something the worst or is it unprecedented and and you know our society is very different now than it was a hundred years ago we're more global we're more connected uh, the impact that this pandemic has had on other aspects of society feels larger than because those aspects are larger than they were a hundred years ago whether it's our supply chains or our educational systems or um, just all aspects of things our number of restaurants and things that people can access the way we live life uh, is very different than we than the way it was lived in 1918 and so the impact of something like a pandemic feels bigger but I agree with Josh it's I don't know that worst is the best word it's just it, there's nothing we've never been through anything like this as a civilization I have to believe is there a possibility that we can get to the point with COVID where we kind of get our annual COVID shots similar to how we do with the flu? You know, my hope is that we don't need it annually. My hope is that we can go years in between like we do with most of our other vaccines. It has to do with how effective it will be against the actual virus. Part of the reason we get seasonal flu is because flu changes. It changes during a season. It changes mm-hmm. quite a bit in between seasons. We're fortunate that flu intensifies in a certain portion of the year so we can schedule our vaccines etc covid hasn't shown us a seasonality coronaviruses typically aren't seasonal um common cold can happen year-round things like pertussis things like croup those are non-seasonal illnesses so we'll have to wait and see um but my hope is that i think covid vaccination will go into the normal schedule Mm-hmm. Um, how many doses we'll need and how long can go in between, time will tell. So when we're talking about variants to the, um, to the virus itself, and I know that you've explained them to us several times before, 
but when the virus mutates and we have a new variant, does that mean that the other one is gone or that it's taken the place of, um, that it's a new virus entirely? Or how should we be thinking about that? Because I have heard just in conversation, people who believe that COVID is gone and what we have instead are variants of COVID, but it's not the same thing. Um, so how, how does that actually work? So um, I will try to try to be not too like nerdy with my microbiological terms. So I'll rely on you guys to translate to non-nerd um, if you can. So there are two pieces to this, at least two pieces. The first is you have to ask what makes an organism an organism, right? So what differs in terms of a virus? You have a coronavirus, you have a different kind of coronavirus, right? You have, you have me and you have my parents and we share a lot of genetic information, but we're different people, but we're all still human. So a uh, chemistry analogy would be it's the protons in the nucleus that determines what the element is, but the neutrons and the electrons, all bets are off because you have ions and you have other things, right? So that is way too nerdy, I know. Um, but for those of you who right. love chemistry as much as some of us do. Anyway, let me get back to, <laughs> right? That we is, all love chemistry. I know you do. Mm -hmm. um, I was just doing chemistry recently with my daughter and I was like, this is amazing. And she was like, no. Okay. So, in the way that things differ, it's all about what do we call at its core. So if you take the analogy of a Christmas carol, right? So the number of codes is about the number of words in a Christmas carol. If I change a few of those words, is it still the same story, right? If I change enough that the narrative is completely different, I take out Scrooge and I call him something else, I take out the fact that it's Christmas, eh, it's hard to make it a Christmas carol, right? But if I, if I change a little bit the way that the Muppets Christmas Carol is different from Scrooge, is different from whatever, they're all variants on a theme. And that's really what variants for COVID are. At their core, they are still SARS-CoV-2. They are still that same virus. They have changes in their DNA um, that make the sequence, if you read the whole thing, they're not identical. But they're still, at its core, the same thing. So I no, like it. COVID has not gone away. Thank you. So with the variants and kind of bringing it back to the vaccine conversation, um, as booster doses of vaccine are approved for people, is there any tweaking to those boosters to um, help them better um, what's the word I'm looking for? To help them be effective against be variants. Be effective against question. variants. Thank you. Yeah. So the answer is not yet. Okay. Um, and part of the reason for that is that the measure of effectiveness is not effective or not effective. It's a percentage, mm -hmm. right? So the flu vaccine effectiveness changes year to year. In some years, it's extremely low. At its extreme, it'll be 20 or 20%. At its best, it's been 70 or 80%. Mm -hmm. So if you say, was that effective or not, it's kind of hard to answer that question. Mm -hmm. um, so what we found is that the original vaccines and then boosting with a dose to get more of an antibody response has continued to be effective, 
from keeping people from having to be hospitalized. And that's why the number of hospitalized people overall has gone down. The proportion of people who are hospitalized who have been vaccinated versus those who haven't hasn't changed. It's in the high 90s for those who haven't been vaccinated. So yes, people who are vaccinated have been hospitalized and absolutely fewer people are getting hospitalized. But if you take that smaller population, the, the pie piece is still a sliver for those who've been vaccinated compared to almost the entire pie for those who haven't. Companies are developing ones to try to respond to variants. The truth is that the virus has changed so much that what are you gonna predict mm -hmm. six, 12 months from now? But, but what's beautiful about these vaccines and why they're so effective is that they're able to tolerate the change in the virus that flu vaccine probably can't. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, again, time will tell. So you were mentioning hospitalization, and I wanted to ask um, both of you about this need to continue to wear masks in the healthcare setting. So here at Cincinnati Children's, and from what I understand in almost every other healthcare setting in our area of the country at least, masks are still required in clinical areas and in public areas. So. We understand that there are people who aren't so happy about that, um, but it's really important that we continue to do it. And will you just share a bit about why it's different in healthcare than it is out in public where most people just aren't masking anymore? Sure, I think it's a great question and we really welcome the opportunity to clarify and uh, help people understand why this is so important, especially within our walls here at Children's Hospital. Um, First of all, I'll just say that this is still a CDC recommendation that healthcare facilities are required to follow, that healthcare settings uh, continue to mask. Um, but more specifically here at Children's Hospital, we have, as many of you know, many vulnerable patients, many children who are immunocompromised for a wide range of reasons, whether it's cancer or transplants or other rare diseases which affect their immune system, or they're just children who are very ill. Uh, and we have an obligation, first and foremost, to protect those children, our patients, um, from anything that could further uh, impact their health. Uh, we also have an obligation to protect our employees who are working with children who are very sick, some of whom have COVID, um, and working in you know clinical settings where they're just exposed to a wide range of various types of illness. Uh, and then, and I know Josh will add anything I've missed here, but the, but the, the other very pertinent to our setting uh, reason for ongoing masking is that we have a population, as you've already highlighted, Kate, uh, of individuals who cannot be vaccinated, who cannot benefit from the protection of vaccine. Um, we have a large neonatal intensive care unit with you know, 60 to 70 premature babies on any given day, none of whom can be vaccinated. Um, we have infants uh, and children under five, a large uh, proportion of our hospitalized patients are children under age five. Um, on top of all the other children that I mentioned. So it, it's just, it, for us, it's a, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Of course, we would continue to mask, as Josh has shared. Masks have proved to be highly effective, not just in preventing uh, COVID transmission, but transmission of other diseases. So it is simply the right thing for us to do. And I, I thank you, and I, I completely agree. I'll just add one thing that I think is important for people to realize, is that the community setting is very, very different than a healthcare setting, and especially an inpatient setting, but even an outpatient setting. So um, if, 
if there's a healthcare context where people aren't masking, they are not following the CDC guidance, and we're gonna follow the CDC guidance when it comes to this. But the thing to remember is that very few children, if you look at all children, are hospitalized. So what? why do those kids end up being hospitalized, that small percentage? It's because they're not completely healthy. They have a vulnerability. They're in bed, their lungs are not opening up the way they should, they have underlying heart issues, lung issues, et cetera, et cetera. So these kids are not normal from a health standpoint by definition. That means that, and they, they collect in the healthcare context, mm. right? So we who work in the hospital think that, oh yeah, these lots of kids are sick, but if you look at the overall population of children in our area, it's a very small percentage. The thing is they're all concentrated in our little building here. So we need to take that into account and be extra careful. One thing about Cincinnati Children's, one of the reasons we're one of the safest children's hospitals in the country, if not the world, is because we go the extra mile to make sure that everybody is safe. We clean more, we, we verify more, we train our people, we speak up, et cetera, et cetera. It's what families expect of us and what we expect of ourselves. And so, as Patty said, it's kind of a no-brainer to continue masking because we know that it's the very best we can do to protect absolutely everybody in our facility. With that, we have answered all of the questions that I had prepared for us for today. Do either of you have anything, any final thoughts as we so, wrap up our time? So COVID will not end, but it's going to be okay. I don't know what's gonna happen next. Um, my hope is that we will we will focus on coping with the stress that has been. I think that many of us have been extremely resilient and many of us are quite tired, but life will go on and we will figure this out. Humans are nothing if not um, ingenious and adaptable. Um, so I just wanna say like it will be okay and all of us will be okay. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I have no doubt that we'll be okay. And you know, I think I want to take this opportunity to say thank you to all the folks out there who have gotten vaccinated, who wear their masks and, and comply with the things that we ask you to do when you're here, and really who've just been supportive of our healthcare workers. It has been a long two and a half years. Um, it has not been easy. There are people who've been through things that they never thought that they would go through as a nurse or a doctor or a medical assistant or a respiratory therapist or any kind of healthcare worker. And uh, it, we can do it because of the support that we feel from, from folks out there like you who listen and who care and who um, show your appreciation and your support. We're very grateful for that. Can I say one more thing? So, of course. Um, I want to say thank you to parents. Um, they take wonderful care of their children. Um, we're here to help them if they need help. Uh, but part of the reason that so few of the kids in our community make it through our doors is because parents love their children and, and take wonderful care of them, and I'm very appreciative of that. I think it's a great day for appreciation. Thank you both for bringing that um, to the table, and thank you both for your time to talk to us about the pandemic again. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the Young and Healthy podcast. We'll see you next time. episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on May 11, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our music was created by Stephen Grieco 
And this episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris. Thank you, Symphony. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.